hear this reading from Jeremiah. This word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Get up and make your way down to the potter's house. I will give you my message there. So I went down to the potter's house, and there the potter was working at the wheel. Whenever the object of clay that the potter was making turned out badly, the potter tried again, making of the clay another object of whatever sort the potter pleased. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. House of Israel, can I not do to you what this potter does? It is Yahweh who speaks. Indeed, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At any moment, I may announce that a nation or a dominion is to be uprooted, pulled down, or destroyed. But if the nation I threatened abandons its depraved ways, I will change my mind and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. At another moment, I may announce that I will build up a nation or establish one. But if it does something displeasing to me, refusing to listen to my voice, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says Yahweh, Beware, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. Turn away from your evil life, each one of you. Give up your evil ways. Amend your conduct. This is one of our sacred prophecies.
There are times you can just tell something's going to end badly. You watch the growing frustration in a parent's eyes as their child yells one too many times in a restaurant, and you know that's going to end badly. You watch as your dog takes off after a skunk, and you know that's going to end badly. You watch as a church starts to care more about the color of a carpet than treating one another with kindness, and you know it's going to end badly. Jeremiah watched as the potter worked with the clay, molding it into something as useful as it was beautiful. He watched as the clay started to dry a bit, to grow unwieldy and bulky, as it began to resist the guidance of the potter's hands, and he knew it was going to end badly. In a moment, what was on its way to becoming an artisan vase was reduced to a lump of raw material on the wheel. As the patient potter wet their hands to start it all over again. And it was in that moment, his attention resting on the clay, that the word of God came to Jeremiah. As he watched the dance between the clay and the potter, he began to feel as though he were watching the dance between Israel and their God. He had the familiar feeling of looking on as Israel began to build wealth on the back of their poorest citizens too proud to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. It was the familiar feeling of looking on at Israel's over-inflating political pride, at their alliances with other overconfident kingdoms. It was the familiar feeling of looking on as Israel forgot why they were ever brought into being to begin with. What was Israel, Jeremiah began to wonder, but clay growing in calcitrant in the potter's hands. There are times you can tell, as Jeremiah could in that moment, that things are going to end badly. And by the end of the century, the bottom had fallen out. The city was ransacked, and the people were led in chains to a foreign land. I don't like wrath of God language. I've heard it used, and I've used it myself far too many times as a weapon to frighten people into my own particular brand of morality. No, I do not believe that God's wrath fell on New Orleans in the form of a hurricane because of some kind of moral failing. No, I do not believe that God's wrath fell on Job because he should have been more righteous. And no, I do not believe that God is going to send God's wrath on you because you didn't agree to a certain set of doctrines about Jesus. I don't like wrath of God language. But every now and then, you can just tell something's going to end badly. And it's the best language we have. In that spirit, this is a sermon about the wrath of God. Earlier this year, David Spratt and Ian Dunlop of the Australian National Center for Climate Restoration published a report that was endorsed by the former head of the Australian military. Like Jeremiah looking upon the clay, they looked instead upon the thermometers and the non-dispersive infrared sensors on the political trends of developed nations and the farming habits of underdeveloped nations, and in it all, they too heard tension. 
in God's voice. And they too set to work on their own kind of prophecy. Between 2020 and 2030, they predicted, policymakers will likely continue to politely ignore global human-caused greenhouse emissions, resulting in a three-degree Celsius temperature rise from pre-industrial levels. Between 2030 and 2050, a number of carbon cycle feedbacks will have been triggered. For example, not enough ice left on the poles to absorb enough incoming heat, which would rapidly move the process of climate change beyond any human ability to make a difference. By 2050, we will have passed all controllable tipping points, resulting in large-scale drought and plant dieback, a half a meter sea level increase, resulting in the immediate need to relocate over a billion people. 55% of the global population will be subject to more than 20 days of the year in heat conditions beyond the threshold of human survivability. Global ecosystems collapse, water availability decreases sharply, Wildfires, droughts, severe storms, and the decline in insect populations render our ability to produce food inadequate. By 2050, they predict, and this is a direct quote, the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end. There are times you can tell something's going to end badly. Spratt and Dunlop may not believe in a Judeo-Christian God. They might not use mythological language. But again, there are times when the wrath of God is just the best language we have. Climate change is the wage of our collective sin. And now, like clay on the potter's wheel, we face the consequence of being broken down and remolded. I've spent a lot of time flirting with despair over this crisis, pushing it out of my thoughts before it pushed me into a void of fear. Eventually, however, I came to a point where I realized that we must do the difficult work of understanding our place in this story even if we're afraid to face where the story is going. The sin in Israel's story was idolatry. Jeremiah leaves no room for doubt about that. And you've probably heard sermons on idolatry, specifically how we probably should not do it. And when you've heard it, you've probably written it off as pre-scientific superstition, but practical idolatry is more commonplace than you might think. Idolatry might be better described as that universal human mistake of confusing what is dead with that which is alive. One generation sacrifices a sheep to a calf made of gold in the empty hope that it will bring prosperity, and we look at that and we scoff. But another generation sacrifices thousands of dollars to a home far too large, full of possessions, in the empty hope that it will bring them happiness, and we call it reasonable. We sacrifice to the gods of comfort, consumerism, and control, maintaining willful ignorance of the price of our folly. But what if we could muster up the courage to look that price in the eye? 
would it expose it for what it is? I'm not a climate scientist, but I have tried to understand this story we're in, how we've gotten here, and why it seems to be so difficult to get out now. And if it would serve us in that work of looking honestly at our own idolatry, it seems worthwhile to review it, especially if you, like me, have spent a long time willfully ignoring the specifics. The story of climate change starts with the formation of Earth's atmosphere. Over the last few billion years, our planet has developed a process of filtering out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and essentially burying it under the ground in the form of fossil fuels like petroleum, coal, and natural gas. This has allowed our atmosphere to maintain a certain balance of heat coming in and heat going out. To see what Earth might look like without this process, we need only to look to our neighbor Venus, which carries its carbon dioxide and its atmosphere like a thick blanket. The surface then hovers at a ballpark of about 864 degrees. Well, of course it does, you might say. It's closer to the sun. And yes, that would make sense, except that Mercury, which is even closer to the sun, hovers at a temperature 64 degrees lower than Venus. It turns out the CO2 blanket actually makes a big difference. Meanwhile, on Earth, since the Industrial Revolution, we have been on this incredible journey, developing exponentially more sophisticated forms of technology to improve human life. But to power this journey, we have developed a strategy of digging CO2 up from the ground as quickly as possible and burning it, putting back into the atmosphere in 300 years the amount of carbon it's taken our planet a few billion years to filter out. A glance back at our neighbor Venus shows us that this policy is a problem. Now it's true, our planet's natural cycles have taken us to increasingly cold or hot places in the past, but never this quickly. This change, it seems, is on us. Well, many years ago, scientists started to notice this trend. Crunching the numbers, they found that if the global temperature continues to climb by just 2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels, the ecological results and their effects on humanity would be cataclysmic. And the only way to avoid this, they concluded, would be for every developed nation on Earth to switch to a form of, zero, of, of energy production that produces zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. It seems simple except the years started to tick by, one by one, with no change. And every year that passed, the shift began to prove more difficult, more expensive, and more contentious. Until here we are, woefully behind on our work. And believe me, I know how frightening this sounds, but I'm afraid this conversation about our future isn't even the most disturbing part. Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, admitted in a public address in 2015 that she never cared much about the fate of polar bears or melting glaciers. It was a shame, she thought, but she had more pressing things to attend to. It wasn't until she became the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, working with underdeveloped countries, that climate change got her attention. She began hearing this refrain, which puzzled her. Oh, things are so much worse now, people would say. So much worse. 
And as she began to look deeper into these bizarre claims that seasons could no longer be counted on for farming, claims that weather had begun to violently oscillate between severe drought and demolishing floods, it was when she heard stories of people going hungry, of schools and livelihoods destroyed, it was only then that reality struck her that climate change was not only real, but people were suffering and dying from its effects right now. Mostly people who contributed nothing to the problem. These developing nations, they're like canaries that we have forced into a mine. And they are facing conditions that will catch up to us and soon. These are the wages of our idolatry. Each of us, by our lifestyles or our complicity, has contributed to this crisis. And sooner or later, we will feel the wrath. Former pastor and author Brian McLaren has said that if you haven't been tempted to serious despair over climate change, then you don't get it yet. We must do the difficult work of understanding our place in this story even if we're afraid to face where the story is going. But here's the thing about God's stories. They're never quite what they seem. Stories about easy judgment we might pass on a prodigal son, or about a dishonest manager losing his job, about the tragedy of an innocent man executed on a Roman cross, there's always a twist. Never are these stories actually about what we think they're going to be about. Jeremiah tells a story about unmalleable clay, halfway on its journey to becoming a vase when it is crushed into a lump on the potter's wheel. And if that were the whole story, then this would be a tragic story indeed. A story about the judgment of the potter, the death of the vase. We are familiar with these stories. We hear them all the time. But then something else Whenever the object of clay turned out badly, Jeremiah wrote, the potter would try again, making of the clay another object of whatever sort the potter pleased. Could it be, I wonder, that this is not a story about destruction, that this is not a story about judgment, that it's not a story about the form of the vase after all, but a story about the work of God to create good and beautiful things from all of the raw material of this world. Israel was crushed by the invading forces of Babylon, reforming it into something new. And then centuries later, the temple of the Jews was destroyed. Yet here we sit right now, the people of God doing the work of worship somehow, still, miraculously, and that is because at the center of these stories is not you or me, is not any human being or human ego, but the Spirit of God working things for the good of any who open themselves to it. And the story of climate change is no different. If we draw meaning from nothing bigger than ourselves, from our survival, from our way of life, then yes, this is a tragic story indeed. But if we are people of resurrection, 
If we are a people who serve something larger, if we are a people who put life, love, being, God, whatever you want to call it, at the center of these stories, then our lives don't end with our death any more than a water's life ends when a wave recedes back into the ocean. Any more than a clay's life ends when it is crushed and reformed into something else. Death, where is your victory? The Apostle Paul wrote all those years ago, staring into the void of his own mortality. Destruction, where is your sting? Australian activist Theo Kitchener calls this relationship to climate change apocaloptimism. It's the response of opening our eyes to this story of devastation, but only grounded in the larger story, the one with life with compassion, with the Spirit of God at its center. It's the only way, as evolutionary theologian Michael Dowd says, to blast through the dam of our denial and clarify both our current predicament and our way into the future. In other words, it's the only way to open our eyes to what's happening with boldness and honesty about our odds and still act passionately, fueled by the spirit of love that will outlive all of us. Our work now, as it has always been, is to surrender to that spirit. It's to serve life. It's to allow ourselves to fall into the reality that at the center of this great story is not you or me, but the spirit of God working all things for the good of any who open themselves to it. And the story of climate change is no different. This is the story in which we are called to live. So then, agents of the divine, with God's immortal spirit burning at our core, let us act because the end of this story is not written yet. And we may still avoid the pain of being crushed. Jeremiah leaves his prophecy open. At any moment, the God of his vision says, I may announce that a nation or a dominion is to be uprooted, pulled down, or destroyed. But if the nation I threatened abandons its depraved ways, I will change my mind and not inflict the disaster I planned. Now therefore say this to the people. Thus says Yahweh, beware. Turn, each one of you, and give up your empty idols. In other words, where we go now is up to us. To once again quote Reverend Dowd, at this point, we cannot avoid purgatory, but we can still avoid hell. If we choose now to shift the narrative, to surrender to the hands of the potter, the spirit of the divine, then we may still make a difference. Now, to get very specific for a moment, this means that I am inviting you into two conversations. Conversations that have to be approached with equal parts urgency and creativity. The first is one that many are eager to have, and that's that it's not 2050 yet. So how can we meet the goal of curbing carbon dioxide emissions before we reach that two-degree tipping point? And the second is one that many aren't aware needs to be had yet. What do we need to do? What do we need to sort out now in order for us and our neighbors to survive the inevitable effects of the damage that we've already done. 
How do we start preparing for sea level rise? Because it is coming. For more intense hurricanes and tornadoes, particularly in low-income communities. How do we prepare for the dramatic swings between flood and drought in our own nation's breadbasket? Because it's coming. Where will we start planting food and when? And both of these conversations, like any major conflict, have to be worked out in four major arenas. Number one, local. What will you do personally in your own household over that which you have, with that over which you have immediate power? Number two, regional. What can we do in Monroe or in Louisiana? What policies do we need to educate on or advocate for? What do we see in our own city that's helping or contributing to the problem, and how will we respond? Number three, national. As citizens of a democracy, what is our responsibility? It's a role perhaps many of us have not leaned into. Maybe we've taken it for granted or have even been afraid of it, but the government works, and works for and answers to its people, and that's you. That's a privilege that many other nations don't have, so don't waste it. And finally, number four, global. In less developed nations, particularly our neighbors to the south, those who can no longer count on the rhythms of the seasons for farming, bottlenecked at our border and detained in our prisons, what can we do to ensure they do not continue to pay for our sins? And however we answer these questions, in, in whatever arena we will engage, it'll hopefully look different for every one of us. Like Frederick Buechner says, we have to find the place where your joy and talent overlap with the world's hunger and need, and then you go there, and you go there soon. There are probably places in those overlaps where we can meet and help one another. Remember, the idea board in the hallway is open, and it's hungry for spirit-prompted ideas that people can rally around. We still have a chance to act in harmony with life, to surrender to the creative will of the great potter. Because the end of the story isn't written yet, and we may still avoid the pain of being crushed. That's a lot. I know that's a lot. You know, they say to preach from your scars and not your wounds. And it's taken me a good while to tend to the fear that arises in me when I look this problem in the eye. I know this deserves a much longer conversation. It deserves the best of our collective energies and efforts. Communal seasons of examining, organizing, and acting. And this sermon only belongs in a context like that. So I was hesitant to preach it without first being prepared to facilitate that much longer effort. But for now, our idea board and our coffee hour this afternoon will have to do. But I could not read this text and avoid this parallel. Climate change is the wage of our collective sin. And now, like clay on the potter's wheel, we face the consequence of being broken down and remolded. So Northminster. May we do the difficult work of understanding our place in this story, even if we're afraid to face where it may be going. May we root this crisis in the greater story that centers not on you or me, but the immortal spirit of God desiring to work all things for good. 
May we surrender now to be co-creators alongside God that this story of climate change may still unfold differently. There are times when the wrath of God is just the best language you have. But then there are other times when you remember the ineffable language of grace. And there are times that you can tell something is just going to end badly. But then there are other times when you know that things are going badly. But you also know the story isn't over yet. <laughs>